I don't know if I can keep that up. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I I, I talk quietly anyway, so maybe, <laughs> maybe you just whisper and I'll talk normally. Yeah, okay, I'll do a stage <laughs> whisper the whole show. Uh, so this week we're talking about uh, uh, museums and libraries uh, and a whole bunch of stuff, tying in with the uh, 100th birthday of uh, Henri Langlois, who uh, founded the Cinematheque in, in France, in Paris. Um, huge figure uh both in terms of you know cinema and its history and uh dude was a little rotund if you know what i'm saying um big fan both of us are so we're going to celebrate him today he's going to be our person of the week we're going to talk about uh toute la memoire du monde uh a short documentary from uh elaine renee from 1956 uh also russian arc um the long take crazy movie set in a museum from 2002 um we will also be picking our cinema central um museum or library on film and uh listening to the pixies all day because uh who better to celebrate on henri langlois than than his favorite band his favorites (laughs) uh yeah that's right so how are you doing sean uh i'm okay yeah yeah, we we survived Halloween. Yeah, we, how'd that go? Uh, it went. It was nice. So it, we have a nice neighborhood. The the kids really liked the trick or treating. Uh, we barely survived daylight savings time. Always, always a rough time for parents with small children. It's rough for me. Yeah. You know, as it were. But um, was your daughter? She was gonna be a uh, wizard princess, right? Did that work out? Yeah, princess wizard. Oh, I'm sorry. Princess wizard. Yeah. She wanted to be a princess, and I convinced her that the wizard outfit was a princess wizard outfit. So That's only going to work for another year or two, Sean. Yeah. Well, hopefully she'll be over the, the princess thing by then. She's already she's already going into the, the dregs of the Disney canon. She, she rented Mulan this week. <laughs> so, yeah. She needs her fix. Uh-huh. Yeah, she, she's running out. Yeah. Well... <laughs> I I I hope for the best for you and for her. Um uh, and your son was Yoda, right? Yes, he was Yoda. And you don't you don't want double standard here. You don't want him to get out of that phase, right? You you want him to be ensconced in the Star Wars universe till the end of time, is that correct? No. I <laughs> I I would like them to to not be that that guy. <laughs> Well, but, it's but genetics, it's, it's, Sean. It's good. It's you know, it's good for for a while. Yeah, sure. No, it's cute. You know, don't yeah. don't you know worry about it too much. Uh, anyway, we have like tons of stuff to talk about. I'm looking at our you know breakdown of the of the show, and I mean, it's we're never going to finish this. So we should uh, get started. Do, are we going to hear a clip? We're going to do a clip. Huh? We're going to make people listen to French. Is that the plan? Uh, yes. It's a, All right. It's a, it's a lovely language. It really is, especially when it comes from mouths other than mine. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so here's a clip uh, from, and I'll even say the English title for once, All the World's Memory. Oh, that sounds so much worse. <laughs> I know, but what are you going to do?
à la Bibliothèque nationale que les mots sont emprisonnés. On y trouve tout ce qui s'imprime en France. Tous les signes que la main de l'homme a tracés sont représentés dans le plus riche de ces départements, celui des manuscrits. Un spectacle toujours changeant se déroule dans la salle de lecture du département des périodiques. On y consulte la plupart des journaux du monde. Au cabinet des estampes, sont conservées toutes les images, qu'elles soient gravées, lithographiées ou même photographiées. C'est un musée. So a few years before he started making uh, feature films, Al Alain René was a short filmmaker through the 1950s in, in, in France. And one of his uh, most acclaimed ones is, is Toute le Mémoire de Monde, which is about the, the Bibliothèque Nationale in, in Paris, which is this massive library. It's basically like the, the Library of Congress, I think, was modeled on it. Basically, everything that's printed in France has to be sent to the library. And so it's just this huge archive of, of knowledge. And, and René, in, in making the film, is making, you know, kind of a standard industrial documentary about this is like the day in the life of a, of a manuscript as it arrives in the, in the library and how it gets sorted and categorized and put on the shelf and then brought out to people when they request it and, and read in the room. But at the same time, he's kind of suffused it with like this, these kind of philosophical explorations about what it means to be a massive library and what libraries are and how they, they function within human civilization. And and he films it all in in the style that he would use in in his features of uh, last year at Marion Bad and Hiroshima Monomore and these kind of flowing uh, long takes down these these long ancient hallways and it's really kind of dreamlike and and beautiful so it's a really really cool movie and. So, Mike, you you work in the library, as we've discussed on the show, and, and what I want to know is 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 this what it's like to work in the library? <laughs> is the uh, the Seattle Public Library system very similar to the Bibliothèque Nationale, circa nineteen fifty six? You know, it's funny because I, I watched this uh, with uh, my partner, who also works in the library, and um, you know, it's it's so. I mean, you know there's shop talk and stuff that we, we, we had about this. It's, it's so funny how much has changed and yet how much is the same, you know? I mean, there are, are clear through lines, you know, between these two things and, and, you know, shelving the books is, you know, the, the task is basically the same, you know? Um, and I asked her while we were watching it, I said, do you, does this make you long for that time? Do you wish you worked in a library then? Or do you, you know, and cause you know, a lot of it's different too, because you know the card catalog is now a computer, and um, it's a lot easier <laughs> to sort information nowadays. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I mean, and my letterbox review says this too. You know, um, I watching this made me really proud of of kind of the tradition of, that I you know am a, a minuscule part of, of of libraries preserving knowledge and and all of these works and trying to get people the right information and stuff. Um, I'm also jealous because it's obviously 
you know, a lot more romantic um, when it's filmed in black and white and narrated in French. And, you know, um, there aren't, you know, screaming kids running everywhere um, and guys urinating on themselves and, you know, stuff like that, which, you you know, you kind of get <laughs> my job. Um, so, you know, it, it's a little bit of both, but, you know, um, it, it, it's very much the same, but it's also very different. I, I, I actually was thinking of, if some enterprising person wanted to like, you know, do a Gus Van Sant kind of thing and, and recreate this shot for shot, but using the downtown library in Seattle, um, I think would be kind of interesting, but, um, yeah, this is a really awesome documentary short, um, infused with, um, such great personality, you know, I mean, it's like you said, it, it kind of follows the template of these kind of like, um, you know, this is how, this is the journey of a book or whatever. Right. Like um, something that you'd see in like a, in like a junior high school or something when the, the teacher was like hung over and she just wanted to watch a, a film strip or something. So right. Or even further talk. back, it would be something like you'd see on like Mr. Rogers or something, you know, sure. yeah. um, like here we go to the post office, you know, and stuff like here's where your letter goes and stuff. Um, but then, yeah. And then, but Renee has all these, you know, like you said, philosophical musings about, you know, he calls the library a prison, you know, and the books are, are chained into their, you know, um, their particular corner and that's where they should live and stuff. Um, which is, you know, it's, it's a joke. It's funny, but you know, um, it, it does bring into question, like, is this how we should be interacting with these kinds of works Were these works meant to be, um, you know, held under glass and, you know, or kept well, under glass and all those things. Yeah. That's kind of where like the, 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 you know, it's, it's in there in the title. It's like the structuring metaphor for the film is that it's it, the library contains the memory of the world and that it's like civilizations. It's, it's our proxy for remembering our, our history is, is just this massive archive of everything that's been written down. Uh, but then, you know, it, it, is, it is imprisoned. It's cataloged and sorted and it's put on a shelf and you can, you can walk through it and you can see all of those things. But the, the key thing, and, the, and that's how the film ends, is, uh, is people take the things off of the shelves and they read them. And he has this these shots of the the reading room that that look like like the the office the office workers in the in uh, uh, King Vidor's the crowd or something except it's, it's all of these people reading their individual books and and each one of those people is is liberating the knowledge and bringing it into the world and he it's kind of this like ecstatic vision of humanity at work and trying to you know piece together one book at a time like the secret to happiness it's really romantic right and oh yeah but you know but at the same time he also kind of throws the idea of like um you know you're never going to be able to consume all of this and a lot of this is just going to languish forever and you know which is true but uh, but you're right it is very romantic and it's one of the things that i love about you know my job you know i mean a lot of my job now and this is the difference is you know requesting season three of uh, everybody loves raymond for somebody you know instead of like i mean which is fine that's totally that's great that, you know, right and, and, him, but, and that's like uh, a, a a little visual joke he has in the film at one point he's like uh, uh speculating on what what treasures are yet to be found in the library and, he, and he's going through all of like these great things like the collected works of emil zola or like original manuscripts from uh like the first thing 
Rambo ever had published. And then he's like, and then he speculates what other treasures are waiting to be found. And, and the, the camera shows us like a stack of Dick Tracy comic books. Right. Oh, it's awesome. I love that shot. It was fantastic. Oh yeah. That was one of my favorite moments in that thing. Um, and I love, I mean, the descriptions are so great, um, of the, the narration and stuff of, um, you know, the, how the library, is constantly expanding like its space because it can't contain everything. So it's going underground as well as going up. And it's just, you know, this kind of like, yeah, the, mutating. the, the, the language he uses is, is like, it's a living thing. It says like the, the library is constantly burrowing underground. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's digging into the earth at the same time. It's, it's expanding outward. Yeah. And it, it's, it's really, really cool. And, and, you know, um, if if you're gonna document any building or library, uh, that's a hell of a one to do too. I mean, it's not you know, it's not just a random library. Like you said, it's kind of like the Library of Congress, where their their goal is to have everything. And you know, it, except it's, except it's, it's so it's, beautiful. It's much older. It's like it's what oh, yeah, it yeah, dates yeah. to what like the it 16th century, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, yeah, much so, much older. Um, so it's 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 centuries says, like, it's, of it's, of like royal commandments that everything that's published in France has to be sent and cataloged and and stored at the library. Yeah, it's incredible. Um and and the building is so gorgeous and all of these like um I mean just row after row of shelves and you, you know you just wish you uh you know <laughs> if if I won the lottery or something like that that's probably what I would do is just like wander around a place like that um, until I died. You know what I mean? Like you you were, you were in Paris a few months ago. Did you go? I did not. um, Mm. I, it, now I'm kicking myself even more. You know, there were a few things I didn't do that I I really wanted to do. um, And there's so much to do in Paris um, that I didn't get to do that. I I didn't go to the Louvre, you know, Um, uh, I I went to the Cinematheque. That was, that was number one on my list. So you can kind of see where my priorities are. Um, Uh, You know, it says uh, it's founded 1368. So, so even older than, than that 14th century. Yeah. I mean, that's just incredible. I mean, just really amazing stuff. Um, So no, I did not get to see it. And uh, I am now very angry at myself for that. Um, I want to talk about the construction of, of, of the short, um, the, it, the, the music, um, Delarue, uh, who you probably is most famous, at least in my mind from, uh, contempt, the very haunting. Yeah. He, George, uh, George Delarue, uh, conducted it. Uh, Maurice Jarre composed it though. Jarre. Oh, is that, is that true? Yeah. Uh, okay. he, he composed, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, the train, which we talked about on the show, yeah. Ghost, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is be, will be uh, our next week's show. Sure, uh, it will be uh, <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia and Ghost. Um, yeah, but it's definitely like like him and and Delarue is is certainly high class composers for a, a twenty minute documentary about a library. Right. I mean this this thing is is like like you said it's it's. Uh, it's a work of art in and of itself. It's, it's not utility. It's not this kind of like, um, just informative thing. It's a, it's a, I'm amazed at how effortlessly this thing flows, you know, like, like you said, the camera's constantly moving and it's, it's focusing on like 
incredibly um like the most interesting thing you could possibly imagine then it'll pull back and show you just like where it sits amongst all of this stuff and it's um it's breath you know it to 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 bring up another kind of french movie um of of this era it's a breathless kind of experience watching this thing um how how wonderfully it just all flows together and uh the the narration um narration can sometimes be you know redundant or didactic or you know any number of things and here it it heightens everything it makes it all the more uh romantic and poetic and beautiful as does the music and the cinematography i gosh this thing is great sean (laughs) (laughs) yeah i like it i i really i really liked it too uh uh have you seen uh renee's first two features I have not. I am. I am a Renee novice, um, which is another thing I'm kicking myself about now. Yeah, well, well, uh, uh, Hiroshima Monomar and and Last Year at Marion Bad are are essential. I mean, he made he made tons of great movies, but but those two especially, uh, I think have have a lot in common, kind of thematically with with this movie. They're both uh, very much about memory and. And in in terms of style, the way the 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 camera kind of drifts and this weird kind of dreamlike quality and weird leaps between like the mundane and the more esoteric mm-hmm. in in tone, uh, yeah, I think I think they're very much a, a, of a piece. I, ha- I haven't seen any of other, his other short films. Uh, I think I, I saw Night and Fog a while ago, but I don't really remember it very well. That's the the short he made just before this about the, the Nazis. Uh, yeah, about the the Holocaust or the the Nazis yeah. or something. Yeah, uh, something horrible. Uh, <laughs> just like libraries. <laughs> uh, but that one that one seems different. And then his his later films are 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 much different as well. Like his, uh, I haven't seen his last one. Life of Riley. He he just died, uh, like a year ago. Earlier this year, I think. Was it this year? Yeah, uh, March first. Wow, six um, months ago. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I haven't seen his last film, but his uh, his three before that I have seen, and they're they're much different. They're very different in style. I mean, you know, fifty, sixty years later. Right. Um. But they're they're also really good. <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's I, great. I'm, he was great. Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, this is a, a very tantalizing, and and you know, it, it really makes me want to um, like like a library. You know, it kind of makes you want to um, dive in even further. You know, like go down that rabbit hole um, that you 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 know are capable of, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I was, I really enjoyed this. Um, and it's, it's, it's available on YouTube. If anybody, you know, if anybody wants to see it, um, Criterion put it up on their YouTube channel. Um, so it looks really good and it's, um, yeah, it's also you, on the, the last year of Marion bad Blu-ray as a special feature. Uh, I, w- I wanted to, to ask you, uh, you know, the film is, is 60 years old. Uh, and libraries are very different now. Obviously, it's it's before the internet. Like, do you do you think that a movie like this could be made now? Like, is there because so much of of what's published is published on the internet? Is it possible to to even begin to to archive all of that? 
or is there something about like the tangible nature of of the books of the published material in a library that makes it it different from the more ephemeral things on the internet well you know the library nowadays is so engaged with the internet and is you know is constantly you know like um you know ebooks are a huge thing at the library now um although surprisingly you would think I mean, maybe you would think um, it's it's interesting that, you know, we've discovered or at the library, we've discovered that um, people, younger people are really still interested in books, like physical books, whereas older people are the ones that are like adopting Kindles and, and you know, don't have time for all of this clutter and stuff and just want to get their, you know, it's very interesting to me. Um, so which is which is um, kind of heartwarming for me because I, I'm the same way. I kind of like physical things and um like interacting with that and and there's a tangible quality to that um so you know i everything is not on the internet and i think um i i think a movie like this could be made nowadays um and and you know like for example seattle public library has some great resources that um they're trying they're trying to get digitized and stuff but there's like at the central library there's the seattle room which has you know documents um very obscure and and you know esoteric kind of things about the city of seattle and its history um that you can probably only get there really um it's a great repository for that kind of stuff um Right, you but know, do, but do you think that there that there's granted that there's that there is you know still so much printed material that you would find in in a library like the the Bibliothèque Nationale, mm-hmm. but uh, there's so much else that's out there on the internet. Like the the idea of of the library as uh, like a physical manis- manifestation of of the collective human memory. Right. Uh, I don't I don't know that that is the case anymore because there's so much else out there. Like as has the internet, oh, I agree. Re, you know, in some ways replaced the library as that. Uh, I don't think it has because, you know, part of uh, the idea of the library is that it is, that it is timeless. It goes back centuries and you have, you know, printed material from, from hundreds of years ago that is still, you know, usable today. Whereas everything about the internet has, the internet has no memory at all. Like it is constantly right. erasing itself. Right. Well, and another thing, and this is, you know, me getting lofty or whatever, but um, the the real ideal or the, at least like from a public library standpoint, I, well, I mean, university library too, or something um, like the uh, bibliotech. Um, the, what's great about a library and what, what separates it from the internet um, is that libraries and librarians and, and library staff are, are, their goal is to get you the right information. And the internet is just, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's democratic and it's just crazy. And every, you know, you, you get all kinds of points of view and stuff, but if you, um, if, if, if it's all overwhelming, the, the goal of a library is to kind of try and, um, whittle that down and find you the the thing you're specifically looking for the thread that you're trying to get and get you correct and um you know the information that you need you know what i mean and i think that it's the it's, a, it's a place of, that's curated it's a curate yeah it's it you know the library will carry you know 
books that you disagree with and books that are wrong about things. Um, but, you know, from a historical standpoint, they might be interesting or whatever. But yeah, libraries um, are more of a curated experience or, or um, you know, people that work at a library are kind of the, the um, conduits to get the correct information. And, that, and that's kind of, that's what, you know, did you think that? <laughs> did you did you think that aspect was missing from from this movie? Because like we don't see like a reference desk kind of thing, or or like a patron. Well, this is a very different kind of library, you okay. know, than a public library. So, um, so there's kind of two different worlds. Um, and I don't think it's I don't think it's a thread that needed to be in this. I think this is about the building itself, and and like you said, like the this kind of the archival uh, nature of the it. storing house for all for everything you know what i mean mm-hmm. um i mean that's that's another documentary in and of itself that could be really good but um yeah but it, it, it it seems to me that like uh uh the internet is an expression of of our present and we we need libraries for our memory absolutely totally um because everything is so fleeting on the internet you know and uh I mean, think about, uh, you know, so there's there's all of this data that, you know, has been amassed digitally um, in the last, you know, 30, 40 years or whatever. Um, But so much of it, even just a few years back, the format that it was saved on (laughs) is, you know... Uh, not readily available anymore to like read it, you know what I mean? Like floppy disks or what have you. Like, sure. um, and so there, you know, archivists and librarians and stuff, their goal is to try and retain that stuff because it may be necessary. Like this short says at the end of it, you know, one of these days, one person may need that, you know what I mean? Um, I, I, and- I, I like to imagine like a, a bibliothèque nationale for for the internet that that is basically just like a bunch of guys or or women uh, in sitting in a room with a computer just printing off every page on the internet <laughs> and archiving it and putting it yeah. in stacks. So like every every website that gets published, every comment thread, everything is getting printed out into a physical form so it can be stored. All that junk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, there's interesting things if you want to dive down that, you know, path, um, you know, like the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco, um, their, you know, their whole ideal is to try and think long term about things. And they're, a small subset of what they're trying to do is kind of do stuff like that. They're not printing stuff out on paper or whatever, but um, they have all these interesting um things about digital archiving and and preserving um outdated formats and and all of that kind of stuff so that down the line those things can still be retrieved you know if necessary um yeah although you know to be honest i i I really don't need i i I really hope that uh things i've written on the melvin's message board uh like 10 years ago i i We can let those things go. No, it's got it's got to be saved. Who who knows? In in hundreds of years, some some you know ardent researcher may come across that and and uncover the the final key to to human happiness. It's true. Or or you know this episode of the George Sanders show. You well, know this 
this discussion we're having right now. Maybe. I don't think we'll have to wait hundred years for that to cause <laughs> human happiness. Well, there's somebody, you know, somebody out in like, uh, you know, the wilds of Montana or something is each episode they're taking like stone tablets and they're carving out each word that you and I say. Transcripts um, and, in, in like a cuneiform script. Right. right. <laughs> um, it's, it's all preserved for, for time <laughs> for all time so yes <laughs> all right with that, that with that, that note, let's listen with that to elegant uh, ending there <laughs> let's listen to the pixies uh what are we listening to uh break my uh, body, break my body. because uh, brains Which Kim is it that's in the Pixies? Is it, it's Kim Deal? Yeah. yeah. Well, not anymore. She's out of the band. Oh, yeah. She quit. Is he, is he, is he uh, Black Francis again, or is he Frank Black still? I think he's Black Francis when he's in the Pixies. Ah, okay. I and think Frank that's... Black when he's not. It's, yeah. very, it's very confusing. It's all very confusing. Uh, so I was... I, you know, we, we got started a little late and, and I was ready a little early because of daylight savings time and the kids. Um, so I was looking around for any kind of news to talk about and, uh, I couldn't find anything. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's, if it's just me, if I'm just not seeing any like interesting stories or, or what, but, uh, the best, the best we can come up with is this, this Orson Welles thing. So do you want to <laughs> give some details on that? Yeah, so uh, Orson Welles, uh, speaking of centennial birthdays, uh, is going to be 100 next year. 
or he would have been a hundred. Um, and it was just announced. Yeah, he's been dead for, for quite a while. He's been dead for a while. Um, another rotund gentleman, mm-hmm. uh, if, if we may use that word again. Um, anyway, so Orson Welles's filmography is probably the most, can you think of anybody who has a more like scattered erratic, uh, you know, pile of work left behind than Orson Welles? Uh, uh, not among, you know, kind of canonical great filmmakers. He, he oh, was, who, who, who are you thinking of? That's not uh, a canonical, uh, great figure. Oh, somebody like Ed Wood or oh. <laughs> maybe Edgar G. Ulmer, you know, toiling in like Z level. Sure. Poverty Row Studios, something like that. But well, of so, of like the acknowledged greats, I think right. Wells has the uh, the spottiest record, not of of quality, because every every single one of his features that I've seen has has been great. Um, but just of like the conditions of how they were made, and of the many many projects that were were started and and abandoned. Right, and who owns the rights to something and has been sitting on it, and how many different versions of something's floating around, like Mr. Arcadin, which we talked about a while ago, and uh, all those kinds of things. Anyway, um, earlier this year, uh, Too Much Johnson, the Orson Welles' first film, uh, which is, you know, I haven't, I haven't watched it yet. I don't know if you have either. But um, I, I haven't. Somebody sent me a, a link to it, and I was going to watch it, and then I haven't watched it. Yeah, I I like to see it. You know, I mean, it's it's not his. You know, it's not his first feature. It's you know, it's something he made for a you know a live um, theatrical you know stage show that was supposed to play you know in between acts or whatever. So you know, it's it, you know go into it with that in mind, I guess. But anyway, sure. Wells also had um, you know at the end of his life uh, a bunch of projects kind of simmering that he'd been piecing together over the years, like he had been doing with, uh, you know, all, all his last like couple decades of work was, you know, he would go make a movie somewhere, get cash or, you know, it's like star in a movie or, you know, supporting role, get cash and then, you know, film as much as he could for the, you know, pet project he's working on. Anyway, the other side of the wind is one of those movies. Um, and it's a film that, um, I think he spent like 10 years or something working on and John Huston's the star of it. Um, and it's about cinema and filmmaking and, uh, it was never completed basically. Um, there are fleeting clips of it, um, on the second disc of Criterion's F for fake, some interesting stuff. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it, how it's a masterpiece or, you know, what was completed is, uh, incredible. Anyway, finally, the footage is being delivered to Peter Bogdanovich, uh, who befriended Wells, you know, in the end of near the end of his life, and um, he appears in the film. If I remember, he appears in the film. Yeah, yeah. he's in the film too. Um, and Wells apparently asked Bogdanovich before he died that if I don't finish the other side of the wind, will you, you know, finish it for me or whatever. So anyway, that's what's happening. Apparently, they're trying to time it for the centennial, the birthday um, coming up. So we will finally, eventually see some version, not the definitive version, not the, you know, I, not even close to the definitive version of, of The Other Side of the Wind. But we will see some version of The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, how do you feel about that, Sean? Uh, 
I'm kind of ambivalent. Yeah. Um, it's, you know. It seems it's, it's like uh, there's a lot of these kind of things with, uh, with records. We see this a lot where like a deluxe edition of an album will come out and along with it you'll get like dozens of, of tracks of like the, the musicians working on it. You get like six different versions of the same song, which is kind of interesting once. But I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a curiosity. It's like, Oh, that is interesting to see that that is what, you know, this is, they tried it this way and then they tried it that way. And then this is the final version that they settled on. Uh, This is kind of like that in that it's intra, it would be interesting to see the raw material that was there, but it's not like there's like a big market out there for watching, you know, all of the footage from a film uh-huh. or, you know, putting out all of, all of the footage that gets exposed from a film and letting like the audience cut it together how they like, which is kind of what they're doing, except the audience is, is Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting project, but I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't count as an Orson Welles movie. I don't think, See, I don't, I don't think there's any way that it could. That's how I feel. Um, the thing with Wells though, is that, you know, this isn't the first time something like this has happened. You know, there's the, the 1998 cut of uh touch of evil, right. You know, which is supposed to adhere to Wells's vision more so than the original theatrical release. Um, there's all the Mr. Arcaden stuff that, you know, there's the confidential report version. There's all, you know, all these, all these versions. And, you know, it's hard to watch those because you don't know the director's intent really, you know? Well, with, with, with touch of evil, at least there was like the, the very detailed memo that he, he sent out and, and he saw all of the footage and he had it all you know, printed and, and assembled in a version and then they changed it and then he sent out the notes and when they reassembled it, they followed his notes, supposedly. Right, yeah. Although, yeah, so... you know, there's like the, the controversial thing, this used to come up on, on like the, the Dave Care message board all the time, is what aspect ratio Touch of Evil was supposed to be in because it came out in 1958, which is right at the time that the studios were transitioning from from 133 to, to widescreen. Mm-hmm. Uh and the restoration came out in in one eight five, and there are people who adamantly insist that Touch of Evil had to be one three three. So even though they're so you know from this point of view, even though all all of these these archivists took great care in re-editing the film to Wells's specifications, they still put it in the wrong aspect ratio. <laughs> But do you really think that's the case? I mean, fifty-eight is is. I mean, it's well. well I, th- I think it, I think it looks better in one eight five than one three three. But uh, but it it's neither here nor there. It's it, the 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 point is that you can't ever really know exactly what Wells right, would have exactly. done. Sure. So Although, you know, so it, any kind of restoration like that is like an approximation of what the intended you know the intended product was. And and that's actually the case with a lot of of studio films. Like you 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 don't know if like the version of Grapes of Wrath that that John Ford made was his version of it, or how much of it was changed by by Daryl Zanuck or or right. whatever. Right. So it's just 
it's the the nature of a collaborative medium is that there's never you can never really be sure of that what you're seeing was the intended thing right but for me i think the the scary thing is the the more the more distance like the time <laughs> aspect like i don't know i mean what's peter bogdanovich been doing for the last, you know, few decades, you know, he's hanging out, you know, he really annoys me. Can I just, can I go on a tangent here real quick? Uh, I read something, I think it was in the New Yorker or something where there was like a profile on, uh, Noah Baumbach or, or Wes Anderson or one of those guys. Um, and how Peter Bogdanovich has kind of latched onto them and he calls them like his children. Like he literally like calls them his children or something. Like he's like some, I mean, I like the Bogdanovich movies I've seen, like, you know, paper moon and stuff. That's great. You know, uh, last picture show. That's solid. You know, there's, there's um, like a creepy uncle vibe to, there's Peter a creepy uncle vibe and he wears that kind of cravat kind of thing or yeah. whatever. And he's kind of gross, you know? Um, yeah, so well, he, he was he was always he was always kind of like that because that's kind of like how he got his his start was just hanging around all these old directors and he just befriended all of them. Right. Um, which just, is which is which is cool, and he made he made some some really good movies, and I don't know I have uh, his his book of interviews with directors. I've only read the Howard Hawks one, but I liked it quite a bit. Yeah. I just not so much for Bogdanovich, but for for Hawks. Sure. Uh, I just don't know if he's in the right mindset. I don't know. I could, I'm just speculating. Give it to somebody else is my, <laughs> my opinion. Who, who would you give it to? Who would you have? If you could have anyone cut the the last Orson Welles fiction feature, who who would it be? Thelma Schoonmaker? <laughs> <laughs> that would be intense. Speaking of, she's coming to Seattle next week. Yeah, with uh, with Michael Powell movies again? Uh, Michael Powell one day, and then she's going to show the uh, Academy print of uh, Raging Bull. Oh. Uh, yeah, and she's going to be at Scarecrow in the afternoon, hanging cool. out. On what, on it's what, awesome. On what day? Anyway, <laughs> uh, I think Tuesday. Hmm. Tuesday or Wednesday. So okay. anyway, Thelma rules. Uh, who would you pick if you if you had if you had the treasure trove of Orson Welles stuff? Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Uh, Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, anyway, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, I, there's, nobody, there's nobody like Orson Welles now, and there's nobody that I would, I would really trust right. to, to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I understand. I mean, I, I, think, I think a lot of directors could do interesting things with it. I'd like to see what John Luke Goddard would do with the, the other side of the wind material. Yeah. <laughs> He would like super. He would like have like three, or like films four different takes so, superimposed yeah. upon each other. <laughs> yeah, like running backwards. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, speaking of of Jean Luc Godard, the the other thing I have isn't really news, but it's just a, a a general complaint I want to make about about this time of year. We should have a theme song for the Sean complains segment of the show, like because it happens so frequently. Like it should be like. Uh, Does well, it really, do I complain a lot? <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. Yeah. yeah uh, so, so yeah, you have something to complain about. I have something to complain about, and it's that uh, 
it's it's not something that I really have a, a solution for, but it seems to me that there's a problem with the way that we we as a collective you know film community talk about movies at this time of year, which is that that the films that are being released that are worth talking about are like the the art house films, the award contending films, and they all come out at different times in different places. And most of them play at film festivals before they get a general release. So what that means is that that all of like the film critics who see the films at the film festivals write about all the movies and they talk about all the movies months before audiences get a chance to see them. And by the time that the movies actually do come out in a, in a theater n- near you, the critical conversation has moved on to something else which seems counterproductive to me like as as a community i think i think that film critics should kind of be in, engaged with the audience and if say like the the tale of princess kaguya opened in in seattle this past week uh which is great but all of like the the film criticism of the tale of princess kaguya was done in may when it played at Cannes. right so there's this this months long disconnect between between the film di- critics and yeah. film audiences, and so what what falls into that gap is is PR people and and advertising, and movies like The Tale of Princess Kaguya don't get a lot of advertising, so they just kind of disappear, and I think this this kind of lack of critical engagement with what's going on in theaters in the present in your city is what's kind of slowly was one of the contributing factors that's kind of slowly killing art house cinema. So, so I don't really have a, I don't really have like a solution to that other than have all of the movies premiere at the same time. (laughs) Right. Because Uh, I mean, even if, even if, uh, you know, a city had like a, a half dozen film critics or, or more who are really engaged with everything that's going on right now, uh, if you want, if you want to be a f- good film critic, you have to go to to film festivals. And if like your city's lead film critic saw Kaguya in Cannes four months ago, they could write about it then. They could write like a festival report from Cannes in the in the local you know Seattle newspaper. But then when the movie actually does come out, if they're writing about it a second time, they're writing about it from memory from four months ago, and they're necessarily not as you know. Engaged with it. Engaged with it as they would be if they were seeing it, you know, that week. And, right. you know, it, it's, it's well, more a problem. It it's more a problem with the smaller movies like that because, because they, they, you know, in theory, they are more critic dependent. Like the, if, you know, you're not going to go see a, a small independent movie if you haven't heard good reviews about it. Most likely, you are going to go see the Christopher Nolan movie, regardless of what people say about it. <laughs> that sounded like an order, Sean. <laughs> you will go. see Well, if the you, if Nolan if you're the kind of person who's going to go see the Christopher Nolan movie, <laughs> then whether or not you know the the critic for the local paper liked it isn't going to make a difference to you. You know, one there was way or the other. Did you see the thing in the New York Times this week about uh, how critics have not? come to a consensus on the new Christopher Nolan movie? Well, how? why should they? It, no, it hasn't I know. opened That's yet. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying is and, weird. Like, there's an article in the newspaper about how critics have not uh, created, like, some sort of, like, uh, you know, 
they haven't consensus, they haven't consensus like storyline about the new Christopher Nolan movie. Like well, that's what's really weird. To this me. is the thing. Like like Inter- Interstellar press screened. Uh, I think two weeks ago, like Thursday before last, I think. And but it was embargoed until Monday morning. So all of the all of the film critics spent the weekend writing their their Interstellar reviews. Uh, and the movie doesn't open for another week, I think. Right. I think it opens in the middle. I think it opens like uh, in the middle of the week. Okay. So I don't think it's yeah. It's coming close. It's coming soon. Anyway, the embargo was lifted on Monday, so we could go Monday, and and so nobody could talk about it. They couldn't even talk about it on Twitter. Like the embargo was that specific. You couldn't express an opinion about Interstellar on Twitter. So the embargo lifted Monday morning when I was in my daughter's preschool class. And by the time I got home from preschool and checked Twitter again, nobody was talking about it anymore because the the critical conversation on Interstellar lasted from like eight in the morning until noon, and then everyone had moved on to something else. <laughs> and like and and that's it. That's the extent of our debate about about this movie was four hours, two weeks before it opened. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's part of the you know this our show here. We don't really talk about new movies very often um, because, uh, one, like you and I don't get the chance to go see movies um, like the minute they come out or whatever. Um, and when so whenever we do talk about a new movie, like a, a current year movie. Well, like when um, we talked about Gone Girl on the last episode. Yeah, we're, we're, we're like a month behind and no one cares. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> You know, which, you know what, ultimately, I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I, it, it, you know, maybe we've already, maybe time is going to go so quickly um, that, you know, something like Gone Girl is just now part of the, you know, repository. It's part of the library of cinema now, even though it's never, it hasn't been released on DVD or anything like that. It's just part of the lineage, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm really uncomfortable with how quickly things get digested and i don't know if it's if it's just my being on twitter do you do you do you feel the same way because you're not on twitter but you do read you read like the dissolve you read stuff on the internet am i is this is this am i spending too much time on twitter or is this just kind of a whole internet thing well i don't think i mean i think twitter is indicative of the problem um but like i yeah i i'm starting to ignore reality a little bit more like i you know you the last several weeks you've asked about news and i got no news because i don't pay attention anymore maybe mm-hmm. because i was watching baseball or something like that mm-hmm. and in a way it's a healthier way to live because um i mean i like being engaged with the film community and stuff but that kind of culture of like having to have an opinion about something right away um or else it's invalid is is no way to live and, yeah, it's uh, it's really unhealthy. Yeah, it it really is. So, I I like more long term, long form kind of um, thinking, or I you know I'd like to think that I do. Um, so yeah, I think it's a I think it's a it's obviously it's definitely a thing. Um, I don't know if there's going to be a breaking point with that, and you know there will be kind of a the tails. I mean the tails, the scales will kind of be um, righted a little bit. I don't know. Um, but it's a pace that can't be kept up for long is, is my opinion. Yeah. My, my concern is just with it, with its impact on, 
on you can Movies. you know who, who who cares about film critics talking amongst themselves like it, it when it starts to have a tangible impact on what movies that audiences go see or are sure. available for audiences sure. to see uh then it becomes really worrisome so that's that's my bigger concern is yeah so I agree. speaking I speaking of of audiences and and watching movies what have you been watching mike uh, well, I watched a movie that, that nobody's talking about anymore uh, called The Tale of the Princess Kaguya um, <laughs> from uh, Studio Ghibli director Isao Takahata. Um, and uh, I don't care if the conversation's over about it. I'm going to talk about that movie because that movie is amazing. Um, I, I, saw, I saw it as well last week. I know. I look forward to talking. I mean, I, I Let's really... Let's talk about it. <laughs> Let's talk about it because it's it's um, it's a wonder. It's an amazing achievement. Like I, I'm kind of welling up thinking about it right now. Um, I I was so bowled over with the um, the beauty of it and the confidence, like Takahata. And, and, you know, you and I did a, a whole, like, three-and-a-half-hour podcast on Studio Ghibli um, earlier this year for uh, They Shot Pictures, um, where we dived into Takahata's work and more Miyazaki, but, like, the whole studio stuff. And every time I watch a Ghibli movie, the thing that I take away from it is just the confidence in in being calm and and taking your time with things and and living for the quiet moments because then those make the you know the more profound the larger moments um that that much stronger and um i don't think that's better exemplified than in this movie um which um if people haven't seen it or if they don't know or if it hasn't opened in your town yet because uh, you know it's it's being released slowly whatever um it's based on a japanese you know folk tale fairy tale kind of thing about uh a little princess who um is born out of a stock of bamboo and is raised by these poor farmers um who find uh gold and riches and in and kind of um kind of uh put her on a path which they think will lead to happiness uh, of making her a princess. Yeah, they uh, find her as like a little miniature princess, and as soon as they they pick her up, she turns into a baby, and she, right. she grows rapidly. And as she's growing up, he, uh, the the bamboo cutter, finds finds gold and and uh, beautiful like silk fabrics in in the bamboo grove, and takes it as a sign that the heavens want him to raise her to be a princess. So he does everything that he can to make her a proper princess. Right. Um, and she is not happy <laughs> with that. Um, and anyway, it's just, and I mean, Takahata's films, you know, if uh, most people, or I shouldn't generalize too much, but um, when people think of Ghibli, they think of Miyazaki. And Miyazaki has a very distinct style that is kind of... Um, become the house style for Ghibli stuff. And they, they, the look is gorgeous and stuff, but Takahata, his work has become more and more abstract. Um, it, we're not even abstract, but a little more sketchy and, and less, um, the, the, the backgrounds are less filled in and, and there's like watercolors and, um, something like my neighbor, the Yanamadas, which was, um, 
the film he did previously, the last movie he did, uh, which was like 14 years ago, it's been a huge gap. Um, you know, it's oftentimes it's, it's the characters interacting with pretty much a white background, you know, it's very sketchy. Um, so, so if you haven't seen Takahata's stuff, it looks different and his way of storytelling is, 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 is different from Miyazaki. Um, and he's awesome. <laughs> yeah, he also he he did uh, he did only yesterday, which which we both really love, and uh, Pompoko and Grave of the Fireflies is probably his most famous, and and Grave of the Fireflies is much more conventional and more similar to to Miyazaki, even though it wasn't a a Ghibli film, I don't think um, it was. It was. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that that and Totoro were released on the same day. Can you believe that? <laughs> the same freaking day. Um, which actually, The Wind Rises... The, originally, the original plan was uh, for The Wind Rises and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya to be released on the same day in Japan, uh, 25 years to the day um, of the of that double feature. But uh, Kaguya was pushed back like six months or so. But anyway... Which, um, which did you prefer? Because you, you really like The Wind Rises as well. Oh, I love The Wind Rises. But uh, I got to go Kaguya. I... I I think it's a it's a more I don't know it's a more fully realized I think it I think it sticks the landing a little better um, it's just I mean both they're both in my top four literally of of 2013 um, Wind Rises is number four and Kaguya is number two so I mean they're both really amazing and I actually really want to revisit the Wind Rises because. Um, I think there's a lot more there that I didn't get just in that single viewing I saw because I was kind of, once again, overwhelmed uh, is is the word that I'll use for these movies. Um, but the ending of Princess Kaguya, holy cow. Like, I, I you know, I don't want to necessarily go into spoilers here, especially because we're ambushing people with a discussion about this. But um, let me just say that the movie comes to a point where I think it's going to, I think it was at its logical end and it's heartbreaking and amazing. And I was like, wow, that is stunning. And then the movie continues. Um, and I was like, at first I was like, oh, they really should have ended it where they did. And then no, they didn't. Because, he, I mean, what comes after that is just, a, oh my God, it's a, it's a punch to the stomach. It, um, it's, it's an astonishing just, ending. It's, it's amazing. Uh have you seen Wolf Children yet? I've not seen Wolf Children yet, and I, I do really. I was at Scarecrow uh, just the other day, uh, picking up some stuff, and uh, that was on my list of potential things, but I didn't get it. But I do really want to see Wolf Children. Yeah, that is that's one that uh, Kaguya reminded me of a lot because they're they're both very much about about parenting, and uh, I I really like Wolf Children. I think I think Kaguya I like better. I like I. As I've said before, I I prefer Takahata as a whole to uh, to Miyazaki. I, I like them both a lot, but uh, Takahata, especially those these these three movies that we talked about, uh, uh, Kaguya, My Neighbor Siyamatos, and and Only Yesterday, especially, are uh, they're so much different from Miyazaki. They they go to to much more interesting places, I think, than Miyazaki ever does. He seems a little more kind of rooted in in like the the story and kind of genre conventions of of animated films whereas as 
Takahata makes stuff that like transcends the the medium. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I think Kaguya does that. It's uh, I think I think you wrote about it on Letterbox, like in relation to to princess movies and and Disney movies, which is uh, a whole angle that I hadn't even considered, but it makes so much sense. And yeah, this movie pretty much obliterates like like it takes the whole Disney princess thing and obliterates it. Like I mean, it just it just it 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 uh, shows it for the sham that it is, and not in a critical way, in just an honest way. Um, yeah, it, that, it, that you can't watch a princess movie again without thinking of Princess Kaguya. I'm, I don't think you can. I mean, it's a, it changes the game. Yeah. Um. And it's beautiful, and I love it, and I'm so glad that I got a chance to see it, like I did The Wind Rises, you know, in a theater. I got to see it, you know, subtitled, um, you know, and uh, it's. Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw The Wind Rises as like a, a make my own double feature with Pompeii. <laughs> that was a great. That's night the at... second Paul W S Anderson uh, reference this week. <laughs> that was a, that was a great night at the movies. <laughs> um, you know, I walked out of it. And I, I don't, you know, time, time moves on and, and, you know, things happen, but I walked out of the movie, um, and I, I was, I was just struck. I, you know, I, I was really sad that if this is the last movie from Takahata, like the wind rises is reportedly from, uh, Miyazaki. Like, um, I'm so thankful that I, I've been able to experience those in their time. Um, because I really believe that they're singular, they're, they're, they're things that don't come around often. And, um, I, I'm just thankful that I got to experience them, but I'm also really, really sad that I will not get to experience that again. <laughs> um, you know, there will be new masters, there will be new, you know, wonderful artists and stuff. But um, this movie, that, 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 it's such a great movie. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's perfect from the beginning to the very end. And um, it, it, it astonishes you, like astonishes, astonishment, it astonishes me, um, the things he's able to pull off in this thing. And uh and Joe Hisashi too, by the way, when I saw The Wind Rises, I was like, you know, I, I said um, that might be Joe Hisashi's uh, crowning achievement as a composer. Uh, but I don't know, because the jams he pulls out in this thing, which are more integral to the plot here too, um, are yeah, fantastic. The, the music in the, in the final sequence is, is really something it's special. It's, a, it's amazing. So... Anyway, that's what I've been watching, um, and I loved it. And I think everybody should go see it and tell me what they think because I want to talk about it more. <laughs> Let's bring the dialogue back uh, about Princess Kaguya. Talking about being a cheerleader for film, uh, I don't think anybody was more of a fan uh, and a more um, kind of influential figure than uh, uh, the person of the week this week, uh, Henri Langlois, who, as we said, would be celebrating a hundredth birthday um, this year, and uh, on November thirteenth. November thirteenth. Um, that's my older brother's birthday. Did I mention that the previous time that we mentioned that? I don't know. Uh, happy birthday to my older brother Sean, by the way, who doesn't listen to this show. But <laughs> um, good for so him. So anyway, uh, you're you're not my brother, by the way. Not not you. Uh, I understand. <laughs> uh, 
let's talk. So for people that don't know Langlois, um, he uh, was the pivotal figure in the Cinematheque um, in Paris, um, and, which was the hub for all of the, the new wave directors. Um, you know, Godard and Truffaut would go there and, and just watch like six movies in a day, you know, and they would be kind of all over the place. Just like you would watch, you know, a John Ford Western and then like Nosferatu and then, you know, all these things. And, and this kind of informed them as critics, you know, with Kaede cinema and stuff. And then on down the line to when they started making feature films and, um, the whole, you know, championing, uh, like Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock, that all started around Langlois and, and the Cinematheque. Um, and you, Sean, um, you really got, I, at least from my memory, um, into Langlois when we actually, and I'm not trying to put us in the same sentence with him, but when we started doing our rep stuff, uh, at the Metro Cinema in Seattle, I remember shortly after we did that, you know, you saw the documentary um, the Phantom fa of the Cinema right. Cinematheque, uh, and you made me watch it. And mm. <laughs> I think you, I think it's one of the few times you've actually like, you know, forced something upon me. Um, <laughs> and not, not, it's good. It's great. It's a, it's a wonderful documentary. Very eye opening and and um, and uh, information. You know, it, it, it's informative, and I really enjoyed it. I wonder how much you know, total, you know, non geeks, uh, <laughs> would like it, but it's, uh, but it, it describes, um, the trials and tribulations of, of, of what he was doing and, um, the impact that it had. Um, and you just recently read a biography on him. Is that correct? Yeah, it was a, a biography, uh, Henri Langlois, first citizen of cinema that was, uh, put together by his son and, uh, and another guy. Uh, it was pretty good. It was published uh, about 20 years ago and it's mostly, you know, kind of standard biography stuff, kind of just, you know, what he was doing. And it, it's, it's full of like interesting information, a lot of, uh, kind of theory of museum kind of stuff, which I thought was really cool, but is, is kind of hard to, to wrap your brain around not being able to actually go to the cinematheque and actually see what it's like. Mm -hmm. But, uh, there's lots of neat detail about his early life. Like he was born in Turkey mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, moved because of the war. Uh, his, his, uh, his family were like a, a, a long line of French diplomats and they'd been in Turkey for, for quite a while. Uh, but then uh, there's a lot of detail on his activities during World War II when he basically as, as part of the, the French resistance was hiding films from the Nazis who were, were out to basically destroy anything that wasn't Nazi-like. So he would just hide movies all over the place, just all over Paris and like people's basements and attics and, and you know, the uh, rundown garages that people would never look for things. And he would go through all of these like weird uh, kind of diplomatic channels to try and get, you know, films saved. Like he, he saved so much from destruction during the war that even if he hadn't, you know, been the guy who programmed the movie theater that, that Godard and Truffaut hung out in, he still would have been like a hugely important figure in film history, mm -hmm. just as an archivist, let alone as a, as a programmer. 
And then there's like the uh, there's the Cinematheque, which he established uh, in the late 30s and then uh, basically ran for 30 years. He started this organization of, of uh, film archives throughout the world with with all of uh, with every country having their own archive and having like an inter-archive loan thing. And, and he ran that for a very long time. And then towards the end of, of his life in, in 1968, he, he got pushed out from, from running the, the Cinematheque, which caused, which literally caused riots in the streets of Paris. (laughs) Yeah. Can you, can you imagine such a thing happening today like a museum director loses his job <laughs> and the youth take to the streets to protest that yeah no it's incredible and, and you know the um when i was at the cinematheque you know they they have a, a room or a floor dedicated to his life and stuff and um that that section you know they show all of the 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 filmmakers that signed you know this like letter you know yeah like well um, like Godard got like beaten by a policeman he had like a you know like a bloody head or something <laughs> yeah it's amazing it's absolutely incredible um but it just goes to show how important he was and and how influential and uh he, he's he's amazing i mean he, he you know it it's hard, it's a little hard to um truly like wrap your head around it now because um with the the way culture is now and internet and having this history to it um you know we think of movies as very important now but there was a time like he was really at the forefront of being like like you said with the with uh saving these from the nazis and and stuff he didn't think of it as like disposable product he didn't think of it as um you know just kind of these kind of flippant entertainments or whatever like yeah he when, was obsessed with movies yeah when when cinema switched to to sound in, in the late 20s and, and the 30s there was this this perception that silent film was was inferior and could be thrown away and most of the the silent films that were produced in in the teens and the 20s and 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 before then are gone forever because nobody valued them there were there were very few people, and and Langlois was one of them, and he was one of the the most effective advocates for for keeping silent film. He would show silent films in like when the Cinematheque started, and and even before that, in in kind of proto film club kind of things that that he he started uh, when he was very young. Um, he would show silent films to audiences, and he was one of the few people in the world who were still showing silent films in the mid nineteen thirties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, you know, I, I think I mentioned on, on an earlier show uh, an anecdote that I thought I remembered from from Phantom of the Cinematheque about him just kind of randomly grabbing Nosferatu and that being the only copy of that. Uh, that's not in the bio- biography. I don't know if that's true. I wanted to to watch Phantom of the Cinematheque again to see if I was misremembering that anecdote, but I did not get a chance. So. <laughs> Regardless of, of if that is print true or not, there yeah, print the legend. There are there are you know dozens of films that are hundreds of films that he saved that would not have been saved without him. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and so happy birthday! I mean, he's awesome. He really is. And you know, I was so like I said earlier in the show uh, when I was planning my trip to Paris. You know, I was trying to you know mark down the things I wanted to see and the things I wanted to do and all that stuff. And, you know, 
geek that I am, the Cinematheque was the number one thing on my list. And when I got to go there, and it's, a, you know, like I said at the time, uh, you know, it's a different building now. It's in a new building, Frank Gehry design kind of thing. Um, so it's not, it doesn't have the historical kind of resonance that it would if it was, you know, housed in the same place. But, you know, even during his time, it moved from different buildings, you know, so it wasn't one place for, you know, 50 years or whatever. Anyway. Do, do they have it laid out according to the way that he designed it because the biography goes into great detail on on the very specific ways that he set up the uh the museum and he had like really peculiar ways of of museum construction like these the individual rooms and he put he wouldn't put like the little explanatory signs on the exhibits because he thought that that uh that that uh, distracted Mm. the audience like when you go into the museum you just read what's on the sign instead of actually looking at the right, thing engaging with it right um there was some signs if i remember correctly um i don't think there were too many i don't know about the layout i mean it seemed to flow um logically to me but um you know, it, it starts with a bunch of, you know, early cameras and um, mm -hmm. and projectors and stuff. Um, and then you kind of go into, um, yeah, it kind of it kind of flowed chronologically, I guess, in a way. Yeah, see, um, I, I think I think his original conception was was more organic than that, than just like yeah. a chronological thing where you would have like weird juxtapositions of things and you would draw connections to them much in in the same way that he that he would program his screenings like it right. wouldn't be you know, a night of John Ford films or a night of Westerns, it would be, you know, like you said, you know, this, this John Ford film and this Murnau film. And then you'd, you know, you'd leave it to the audience to figure out the relation between them. If there were, if any. Sure. Or the, you know, or you would contrast them, you know, with the, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, but that being said, um, you know, I, I spent a, a large portion of a day there and I, could have spent more time and so um i i i would love to go back especially to spend time in the library they had there um i could i could go to paris for a week and spend the entire week in the library um of the cinematheque um and you don't and you don't even speak french no i don't um <laughs> as everybody that listens to this show knows um the the library has you know um a screening room where you can um you know there are individual stations and you can you can watch movies uh to your heart's content um and, but then it also has three or four rooms of of print stuff um you know periodicals they've got you know every issue of kaidu cinema and um you know sight and sound and all that stuff um and a lot of english language books and stuff um and so even if maybe I don't know, a fifth of the stuff there was uh, in English. That would be enough to last a lifetime. Um, it was really, really cool. And I'm sad I didn't get to spend um, a good whole day just pouring over, you know, out of print books on Howard Hawks or something like that, which uh, they had. So, <laughs> yeah, well, very cool. Very cool stuff. Like I've said, my, my wife refuses to go to Paris with me. She's been before, but she refuses to go with me. And I'm pretty sure it's because she knows I'll just spend all of my time <laughs> at the Cinematheque. Yeah. So speaking of, <laughs> of awesome libraries and museums, what, uh, what is your cinema essential library or museum? Uh, well, you know, 
there are some really good choices here. Um, you know, first thing that sprung to my mind was uh, we're coming up on our 1984 show pretty soon. And, um, you know, there's the iconic uh, library scene, the New York Public Library in uh, Ghostbusters, um, the beginning of Ghostbusters. But um, I actually went with a film that I don't love as much as the rest of the world does. Um I might need to revisit it at some point to see what I was missing. Um, I like it just fine, but um, I am not the rabid fan of John Woo's Hard Boiled that everybody else is. Um, not the biggest action guy in the world, I guess. But um, there's a scene in a library in the middle of that movie yeah. that um, doesn't have much to do with anything. <laughs> um, it's you know, it's just a cool setting for uh, an assassination. Basically, there's a hitman. Um, who walks calmly into uh, this library, walks down the aisle past the stacks, pulls out a book of Shakespeare plays from the shelf, takes it to a table, opens the book up, and inside is a gun. And according to the uh, Internet Movie Firearms Database, <laughs> the imfdb.org, which I did not know was a thing uh, until I was planning for this to be my cinema central uh it is a davis p32 uh pistol oh of course <laughs> the, da the davis p32 that's yeah with a silencer attached a classic um and they have they and if, if there's any question about it they do include screenshots hmm. uh including an extreme close-up of the p32 um Anyway, and then he takes the gun out and he kills somebody and the guy bleeds out on the table at the library. Uh, and it's a really, I mean, talk about stylish. I mean, John Woo um, knows what he's doing. I, I will i will admit that much. And um, that scene is just perfectly calibrated and using the library setting, which is, a, you know, the library is known to be very quiet. So he uses a silencer, you know, and um, it's just a really well-constructed scene in a very well-constructed movie. So that's my pick. What about you, Sean? This is an, an interesting choice. Hard Boiled, of course, is, is a masterpiece, one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, my pick is, is, is a new movie that has not yet been released, although it is, has played on festivals, and I think it is opening. Oh, in, so now you're part of the problem. I am part of the problem. It is, it's opening in New York soon, and... and uh, as with all of his films, it'll play on public television, and it might actually get a local release here, and that is uh, Frederick Wiseman's National Gallery, which I saw in Vancouver, and is about the National Gallery in, in London, which is this big art museum. And it's, uh, I don't think I talked about it last week on the show, when I did, did the, the Vancouver day. recap, but it's uh, it's like like all of Frederick Wiseman's uh like most of, of his his films, especially the ones about uh, kind of art and, and artistry, like his dance films, uh, they're they're very uh, kind of schematically structured. Like you see the the you see the performance at work, and then you see the uh, the artisans uh, backstage who are making the performance possible, and then you see like the the suits arguing about money and how they're going to fund the performances. And in and cutting between them are these kind of interstitial shots, like in the ballet films, it's like of of the dancers, you know, kind of lounging or stretching or seeing the physical therapist or something like that. 
Well, in National Gallery, the interstitial shots are of the paintings and of, and more importantly, of the people looking at the paintings. Uh, the performances are uh, these uh, speeches given by the tour guides talking about the the paintings as they're you know showing them to an audience. Or um, there's a really cool one with one of the uh, the officials of the museum talking about the restoration process from a print and and there's like a this cool one where he has like this giant uh painting and they've x-rayed it and they show that if you lay it on the side you can see that the painting is actually painted over another painting mm -hmm. uh which is which is really interesting uh the behind the scenes stuff are is uh like restorers at work or frame makers or like the actual constructing of the room where the paintings will sit uh, and then there's like the money stuff and, and that's a very small part of the film, but it's, it's just a really fascinating look at, at the museum as, as an institution with an emphasis on, on the art that's there and the ways that we interact with it and talk about it and, and look at it. And then it ends with like a weird dance sequence. Cool. But it's, it's a, it's, it's a really great movie and, and. You know, I've I've been on like a Wiseman kick this fall, and it's it's one of the it's one of my favorites of of his films. So when it comes out, you should see it. <laughs> That's right. We will repost this section so that we can be part of the dialogue when it comes to your area. So yeah. be prepared. I, for I would that. go see it again. It's like three hours long. I would go see it again. Yeah, sounds really fascinating. Yeah. Um, well. Uh, speaking of galleries, uh, endless rooms of, of art and treasures and what have you, uh, let's hear a clip from our second feature this week, uh, Russian Ark. Okay, so that was a clip from uh, Alexander Sokurov's 2002 film Russian Ark. Um, the film uh, takes place at the Russian uh, Hermitage Museum, uh, and it's it's one. It's actually interesting. We're talking about the 
right now. Uh, was this the reason we brought it up? No, I don't think so. But there's the new uh, movie Birdman that's out, right? Mm, Birdman. Everybody's talking about Birdman. Um, and it's... Which know, is it's actually a, out now. We just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, we haven't seen it yet. No, no. Um, but, it, you know, that movie, if I'm not mistaken, is, is supposed to be one continuous shot, right? There's one unbroken shot the whole movie. Um, I, I don't I, think they I actually so. did that, but uh, I, I think it was done through, you know, computer wizardry, as it were. But mm. anyway, Russian Ark has the uh, same kind of formal conceit. Um, it starts with a man um, waking up from some terrible accident or something. And um, it's, well, he, he, he opens his eyes and, and there's blackness and then... Right, and then all of a sudden he is uh, outside of this museum, um, but it's actually the 19th century, um, and we're seeing his point of view for the entire movie as he goes through all of the rooms of this giant museum, and he he follows this kind of aristocrat um, who kind of fleets in and out of the story and kind of makes comments and stuff. But interestingly enough... From room to room, he goes to different time periods. So he and and all of the and a lot of it is kind of a greatest hits, if you will, of of Russian history. You know, um, some big figures are there. You know, Catherine the Great, and um, and so he he kind of it's kind of this dialogue about art and Russian history and Russia's place in the world and um, what it means as, as this guy's trying to figure out what exactly is going on um, all the while going through these rooms of, you know, uh, great, you know, cultural artifacts and, and, you know, ballroom dancing and all of these, you know, crazy things. <laughs> uh, the movie's uh, a little over an hour and a half, and it is one unbroken shot. Um, it's there's There was some digital stuff done after the fact, um, and we can talk about that in a minute, but it's not like Rope or something where, um, you know, Hitchcock only had a certain amount of time for each reel and then had to kind of fake the next real of making it seamless or whatever by having a shadow move in front of the screen or something like that um this was recorded digitally onto like a computer that held you know about a hundred minutes worth of, of footage or whatever and and so they did this in uh from what i read uh three takes the first two takes were ruined by mishaps but the third and final one is the one that we see um and it's unbroken and um that alone makes this uh, worth a watch. I'll I'll say that much. It's 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 pretty incredible to to pull something like that off, especially because there's a cast of Hundred, hundreds thousand, of people, yeah. hundreds hundreds of people throughout this thing, um, interacting and moving around and in different costumes, and it's crazy. Um, but let me ask you this, Sean you you're more of a history buff than I am. Um, you, you know more about the world than I do. I really don't care, to be honest, about a lot of things. Uh, unless it's movie history, I tend not to pay much attention. Um, That's so So sad. for me, for I know, it is sad. I, I just, I don't have the aptitude or the time or whatever. I don't know what it is. Um, so 
I watch this movie and I know, like I try when I review movies or I think about movies and I watch movies, um, you know, I try to, I try to be, obviously you bring your own personal experience to something like that. But in, in terms of this movie, I know that there's a lot that I am not getting from this movie because I don't know about Russian history. I don't know about 19th century Russian history. Um, there are little bits in here that I get, you know, obviously the World War II scene um, and little things like that. I know what they're referencing. I know what they're talking about. Um, but for the most part, I don't know what the hell Catherine the Great did. I don't know what's going on. So does this movie is one of the reasons you enjoy this movie. You've seen this before um, because you know what the hell's going on. <laughs> um, I, I liked it more this time watching it a second time than I did the first time. I think uh, I actually think the, the kind of one shot conceit of it while it's while it's really cool and it's really impressive as a technical achievement. I think it kind of draws attention away from, from more interesting elements of the film, at least to me and, and kind of looking over, I was looking over uh, some of the reviews that it's gotten from, from random people on letterboxd. And a lot of them are like, uh, hey, it's really cool. They did this in one take. It's really beautiful. And it's so boring. <laughs> Which, yeah, uh, I, I didn't think it was boring at all. I thought, I thought it was really fascinating. Uh, and I don't know that much about Russian history. Like most of the Russian history I know comes from, from War and Peace. Uh, <laughs> Which I read the first 250 pages of and then said, forget yeah. it. <laughs> uh, but but there's not a whole lot of Russian history in the film. And, and what is there is, is, is pretty, uh, is, is explained by, by, by Sokhorov, who, who is the, uh, the narrator. He's, it's kind of, it's his voice that is the camera's point of view. And in his conversations with, um, with with the guy that he meets the the stranger who is uh who is a foreigner uh where he's never actually identified in the film he's supposedly uh based on the marquis de Custine, who uh uh had traveled to russia in the 1830s and wrote a memoir about his time there but that's not really important like you 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 understand that he he's a foreigner there and that he has you know very definite opinions about the russians that he is not uh uh, has no qualms about expressing to anyone he meets. But whenever they meet, uh, you know, like Peter the Great, uh, we see him in a very early sequence, and we see, a, you know, a very tall man berating uh, a subordinate, and the narrator walks away from that and talks to somebody and says, I think I just saw Peter the Great. Or we see Catherine the Great a couple of times, and she's identified, and there's like a, this big ceremony where an ambassador from Iran is making a formal apology to the Tsar, and that is explained to us. And then we see uh, uh, Nicholas II's family, his 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 children. Uh, uh, they're not necessarily explained who they are, but there's repeated reference to Anastasia, who's one of the, the you know the more famous Russians in history. So you know I don't think that there's anything you're really missing by not you know being immersed in Russian history. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. No. I mean, I I just wondered if if there's 
okay. It, it, you, what you're saying is there's no deeper. I mean, like you said, you're not you're not super well versed on any of this stuff. But like, yeah, I when they describe these people and stuff, and you can I can follow it in that kind of context. But I don't. I don't have the wealth of you know what all of those lives actually mean um, at my disposal. Um, which doesn't, yeah, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit. So I'm not saying like I was, um, yeah, I felt well, adrift I'm, at any time. I don't, I don't but, think you need to really know anything about Catherine de great to, to enjoy her two scenes. Like there's, there's one scene where there, you know, there's like this really elaborately staged opera and, and we see the opera, we come in from, from backstage and we come around the orchestra and, and the narrator and the, and the, uh, the stranger argue over whether the the Russian or the the musicians are Italian or Russian. Uh, the stranger insists that they must be Italian because they're they're too good to be Russian. Too good, right? Uh, and then and then as we see like the full stage and it's and it's beautiful this this stage that's been constructed and it's like these really great effects. And then we we go over to the audience and there's like five people in the audience. So you know we get a sense. Of, and one of them is, is Catherine, the the Tsarina, and she makes like a uh, like a scatological joke as she as she leaves. <laughs> so well, she we just really had to pee, right? Exactly, and yeah. and so we get a sense that that there's like this great art being produced for a very tiny audience that doesn't really give a shit about the great art, and you know, and the Tsar doesn't really care either, right. So, I mean, we don't need to know anything about Catherine the Great. Like, that that scene tells us everything that we need to know about her in that scene. And then we get one later on where she kind of runs out in the snow, which is really kind of mysterious and, and interesting. But, you know, I don't think we need to know any specific details about her in order for that to, to resonate. Okay. All right. That, that, yeah, that's fine. I just no. I'm just I I'm just saying. I I watch this and I wonder if someone that's really engaged in Russia and its artistic history and its you know, um, yeah, all sure. of that stuff. Like, do they do they watch this? Are they nitpicking it? You know, are they like, well, you know, that's not you know, or are they like, oh man, you know, the juxtaposition of these two things together means blah 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 or something. You know what I mean? So um, I I agree. It's I don't, possible I don't you'd you'd have to ask somebody who's more versed in Russian history than me. All right, <laughs> but as just a, a fan of history in general, the way that the film approaches history, I think is is really fascinating, and I think it that is what justifies the the kind of long take approach because you get this idea of, of of history that's constantly flowing together like the the single take camera movement and the and the steady cam gives you like this sense of of floating through time and that it, it doesn't go in in a strictly chronological order like it, it's it's roughly chronological but not but not exactly uh and I think that that is is a, a a great way to think about history to 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 experience it as this kind of you know kind of continuously you know flowing sequence of events that that we kind of dip in and out of and and bits and pieces of them we catch glimpses of and maybe we understand them and maybe we don't. Mm-hmm. So I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So what did you did you have an opinion on the kind of uh, the the primary aesthetic argument that the stranger and the narrator are having throughout the film? Whereas, whereas the the stranger is is criticizing the Russians for trying for pretending to be European for not being in touch with their roots. Like uh, 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 Peter the Great founded St. Petersburg and named it after himself in, in the, the style of a European city because he, he wanted Russia to be a great European power along the lines of, of you know, France and England and, and, and uh, kind of the German states. And so St. Petersburg is built along European lines and, and the Winter Palace, of which the, the Hermitage Museum that we spend the movie in, is, is very much European in architectural style. Uh, as opposed to like uh, like the Kremlin in Moscow, which is which is very Russian and much more Asiatic in, in influence, um, and then all uh, much of the art that that we see in the Hermitage is European art. We see lots of Rubens and we see stuff that looks like Rembrandt, but isn't quite Rembrandt. And and the El narrator is yeah El Greco. It's is very critical that it's this it's a Russian museum, but it's not Russian enough. Uh, what did you think of that? Uh, you mean what? What side do I fall on? Like, yeah. Do I do I agree with him that that Russia should own up to you know should embrace its Russianness? Um, I don't really care. Like, uh, mm-hmm. like I don't. I I guess I would say I disagree with him. Like, I mean, I think trying to pretend to be something you're not, it, which I guess is kind of the argument that he's making. I can I can see that, but um, I also don't feel the need to like um, be so rigidly like uh, preserving your own um, identity. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, I feel like um, a lot of good can be had from uh, taking from disparate cultures and and refashioning them as your own, or, you know, in your own image, or 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 you know celebrating art from other countries i think that's wonderful you know so i don't think that um this museum should should just be a tomb to uh russian identity you know what i mean um so i kind of it's interesting because this guy this character the stranger uh he's obviously a crucial part of this film and it's funny throughout the movie my opinion of him will change mm-hmm. um I love him in the beginning when he's kind of a scamp and he's kind of, he's clearly not of the time period that's taking place there. Like the beginning when it's like the 19th century and he's dressed in this kind of like long black coat or, or, well, he is part of that time actually, but like he seems removed from the, uh, the goings on as it were. He likes Um, the, he likes the 18th century eras. He looks back at them with nostalgia right? because he's from the early 19th century. And so so I, I like him when he's kind of like, uh, kind of an imp or, or whatever, but then later on he becomes insufferable like at times where you're like, you just want to kind of smack him because he's being so um, uh, kind of haughty and just like, like um, you know, his way or the highway kind of thing. You know, he accosts this one uh, modern kid who's like looking at a, a painting um and and he and he tells the kid he cannot understand it because he doesn't know the Bible. You know, the kid is not religious, so he doesn't know what it's, what's it's going a, on. It's a it's a it's a painting of of Saint Peter and Saint Paul. 
Right. And, and he asks the kid if the kid likes it. And the kid says, yeah, I like it. I like the, the way they paint the hands or whatever. And he's like, you don't know anything. You don't know. Uh, actually, kind of like with me watching this movie. Right. I don't know what the I, I like the, the formal you know aesthetic of the movie. I like the ideas behind it, but I don't um, know the history of it. Does that make my experience with it any less? I don't necessarily think so but his character does and that's and in those scenes you're like well screw you dude you're a dick you know what i mean like so i thought but i think that's really interesting because he is our um kind of portal you know he's the one person that we follow through all of this stuff um and to and to kind of um love him and hate him is 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 really cool it's an interesting thing i love the performance the guy that does it uh, uh sergey uh, Donsov. Yeah, um, he's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what yeah, do you think? Do, do you side with the idea that Russia should have uh, just uh, proliferated their own identity and and not tried to pretend to be a uh, you know English aristocracy? I don't. I don't know enough about Russia to have like a really coherent opinion, and I don't want to 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 say, but. From from what I understand of Russia, it it is this kind of in between place because it, it's in between Asia and it's in between Europe and it's not really one or the other. And I think that that a lot of the 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 kind of you know the themes of Russian history and Russian literature uh, arise from this this conflict between its its kind of dual natures and. And I think that that's one of the things that makes Russian art so so interesting, right? Russian novels, Russian music, and Russian films is is this kind of push-pull between kind of uh, Asiatic despotism and European cosmopolitanism. And, and it's this really fascinating conflict. But but what, what it made me think of was uh, this film, was, it was made in 2002, and, and Russia was... was a different place in 2002 than it is in 2014. Like it, it, it seems to be headed in a, a darker direction now than, than it seemed to be then. Uh, I'll say. <laughs> and, and, and a movie like this, that, that seems to be very, very nationalistic and very pro Russian and pro kind of a, a, a strong and, and, you know, uh, forceful Russia. Uh, were the same kind of film to be made in in China, the the critical community would would backlash against it for being pro, you know, the Chinese government. And I don't know that anyone has has criticized Russian arc for being like pro Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, actually, I thought about that while watching this. I, I was wondering what the reception to something like this is in Russia. You yeah. know. Um, because this movie isn't propaganda, like it's no. not it, like it's it's not like it's not pushing that agenda. It's, it's well, having... if it's it's if it's propaganda, it's propaganda for for Russia, not for you know the Russian government. Right, but even even that, I feel like it, it's 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 having a dialogue about that. It's not right. It, it's not like beating you over the head with one ideology you know because like it's, you said it's like, not it's not triumphant in the way that like a nationalist propaganda film would be like it, the overwhelming emotion in the film is sadness yeah 
Um, well, and the, you know the the character whose which which eyes... seems to me to be a very Russian thing. <laughs> you, you don't say. Um, the character whose eyes we see it through, mm-hmm. um, he is in dialogue with the stranger, and they're not in in agreement the whole time or anything. Like it's mm-hmm. not like they're just like, oh yeah, you know this is like they. It, he's watching this guy make his his arguments. Um, and he's questioning them and, and, and it, the movie doesn't really, I don't think it, I don't think it gives you like a, a concrete answer, um, one way or the other. I think you could watch this and come away with a, a couple of different perspectives on, on Russia and its place in the world. Um, yeah, I think, art. I think I just, I think I just get annoyed by, by every film being seen through this filter of whether or not it is it is pro the bad government or or anti the bad government and it's a it's a big problem with 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 chinese and, and hong kong film and oh sure no absolutely um i think like I, I i read that. reviews of of drug war that d- dismissed it as propaganda for the the chinese communist government right that's ridiculous yes <laughs> Man, I don't see the same kind of thing happening in in other countries. I, I don't see that being applied, that same logic being applied to to Russian films or French films or or German films. So, right, I find that irritates me. <laughs> uh, should we should we talk about the ending of the film? Because I, I think that it's a really neat ending, and it's twelve years old. So, do you think we can spoil it? Oh, totally. Well, I mean, I, is it really spoiling it? It's in the fucking title. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> which is really cool, and I hadn't really considered it because I was just thinking of it as like like a metaphorical art, like like it's a museum, and an ark is a thing where you you store up all the stuff that you want to to save from the flood, uh, and then in the the final shot of the museum as as all of like the the costume people are leaving from the big ball. Uh, everyone very slowly goes down all the stairs and down all the hallways, and then the the camera goes to a doorway, and what we see is just a, a vast ocean. Right. So which this is a, place... a neat little joke. <laughs> yeah, I I really like it. Yeah. Uh, I I think it's a really um, it's a striking image, first mm-hmm. of all, um, and it's a very um, it, yeah, it's a very poetic way to go out. I think you know. I mean, it's 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 good. I I I, I thought it was I thought it was just fine. I thought it was great. It it, it made me think of t- of two other movies that we talked about on the show. Uh, the Russian film Solaris. Yeah, which of course is it's about an an ocean that is that cosmic. is a memory machine. Yes, uh, and also wavelength, which ends with waves. That's true. It does. I think I which of- also is like the, it's the illusion of a single take, even though you know it's 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 not, but it looks like a continuous zoom in the way that Russian arc is a is a continuous kind of uh, uh, steady cam shot. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's a great ending. I think it, it's um, it it's 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 both on the nose and ambiguous at the same time. If that makes any sense, like yeah. you know it. It nails, you know, it, 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 it lays bare the title of the movie, but like going back to the idea of like, um, it, this like not bludgeoning you with its, its, um, ideology, if it has any, um, 
you you know you can't be more just like kind of open-ended than looking at waves is my opinion (laughs) at the end of a movie Uh, which is you know like like wavelength you said it's not it's not like a a a pedagogical trip through the museum where it's like this is the art these are the sculptures this is the big vase uh it's it's a dream of the museum and a dream of russian history and it ends illogically right which is is perfect yeah works with a dream yeah absolutely i think it's great um you haven't seen any other uh, Sokorov movies, have you? I have not. Yeah. Um, I was looking at his filmography, and I haven't heard of any of the other ones either, so I'm not very... Uh, his his Faust, I've, I heard good things about. Uh, uh, Peter Labuza from the Cinephiliacs podcast. I really liked that one. I think it was yeah. his favorite film from last year. But uh, no, I haven't, I haven't seen any of his other films. Yeah, well, uh, th- this one is... Uh... I mean, it's, it, I've heard about it for years, obviously, you know, it, um, it always crops up, you know, when something like Birdman comes along, um, you know, and people are like, what's the longest take or, you know, all those things or whatever. So I hear about it from that kind of, you know, that perspective of like this kind of audacious kind of technical thing, which I agree with you. Um, it, it, if you let that be your experience with the movie, you're missing out. Like there's, there's more to this movie than that. Um, I think that conceit works really well. I think it, it's integrated into this, um, in, in a fascinating way, um, where it's not just kind of some hokey trick or whatever. Um, but anyway, I'm glad I caught up to it. I'm glad that, um, there's more to it than that. Agreed. (laughs) So speaking of, of waves and of, uh, of archivists saving things from from destruction. Here's uh, the wave of mutilation.
All right. Uh, thanks to to Frank and and Kim and and the rest of of the Pixies. Uh, next week on the show is our uh, is our Bob Dylan episode because the big giant basement tapes box set is is getting released, and I'm not going to be able to buy it because it's too expensive for me. <laughs> well, I've got all that stuff on bootlegs anyway. Yeah, I do. I, 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 you know, you, you gave me the, the big like five disc bootleg thing several years ago, and I'm wondering how much of that stuff is going to be duplicated on the, on the new set, and how much new stuff is going to be on there. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't investigated too much into it. I bet you, I bet you one thing. I bet the one they're officially releasing sounds a little better. <laughs> I, I bet, I bet, I bet it does. Uh, uh, so but we're gonna. Tons of on there. Yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a couple of Bob Dylan movies. We're gonna talk about uh, the one he directed in the '70s, Ronaldo and Clara, uh, assuming we can find it. Uh, and <laughs> last I looked, it was it was there was a, it was out there on the internet somewhere. So so hopefully it will still be there. Uh, and then we're gonna talk about uh, the one he he wrote under an assumed name about ten years ago called Masked and Anonymous which I've seen, and it has a really great soundtrack. <laughs> and it's di- directed by the guy that made Borat. So there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that'll be interesting. Um, we'll, and we'll listen to a bunch of Bob Dylan. So there's a reason to tune in. We should, we, should, we should play something else. We should Instead just, of Bob Dylan? We should, yeah, we should just play Taylor Swift. What if we played like Bob Dylan covers or something? Like uh, people covering Bob Dylan or something? How about Taylor Swift covering Bob Dylan? How about... <laughs> <laughs> that that I, I i'll accept that if you can track that down i'll accept that um you can find out more about the show and all that good stuff uh on the internet uh at the george sanders show.blogspot.com uh we're on twitter at geo sanders show uh and you can email us at the george sanders show at gmail.com let us know your thoughts on the tale of the princess kaguya um, and, and let us know what your favorite Bob Dylan song is. Let us know anything. Mm. We need to know more about you people. You know everything about us. You know, tell us about you. Know, you. you know far too much about us. Way too much about us. Um, if you, I think I've talked about the uh, Kung Fu Grindhouse before. Um, there's a guy from Portland comes up to Seattle, usually about once a year around this time, and shows a double feature of uh, some rare 35 millimeter prints of, of Hong Kong action films. Um, his name is Dan Halstead and, um, that's where I saw the victim, which we talked about before on the show. Anyway, I've been in communication with the grand illusion over a super secret project. And, uh, I asked them, uh, as an aside, Hey, where's, when's Kung Fu Grindhouse coming back, uh, to the grand illusion in Seattle. And, uh, unfortunately no plans, uh, for the time being for them to come back up here, which is a real shame. Apparently this Dan guy is really busy. Um, but I want to give a shout out to he does this kung fu thing. It's called Kung Fu Theater down in Portland um, at the Hollywood Theater, and it's a I think it's a monthly thing they do. Um, and he shows prints from his collection, a collection of of tons of great you know obscure kung fu movies and stuff. Um, if you're in Portland, Kung Fu Theater is a monthly thing at the Hollywood Theater. Um, this month, on November 11th, they're going to be showing a film I've never seen, never even heard of before, but I have faith in this guy, Dan. Um, it's called Shaolin vs. Llama, 
And I'm sad to say it's not a llama like uh, the animal. It's mm. actually like a Tibetan llama. Um, but it sounds really interesting. Um, and it and I wish I could make it down there for that because I I, I miss my kung fu grindhouse. So, mm. uh, you know, big shout out to Dan and his and his, all of his tireless efforts to get these uh, you know movies shown to people. Well, my my choice as well is a West Coast Hong Kong film series, and it's uh, in San Francisco. The San Francisco Film Society, November 14th through 16th, is doing a Hong Kong cinema series at the Vogue Theater. And they got a lot of great stuff, including uh, a couple of uh, movies I saw in Vancouver, uh, Anne Hui's Golden, The Golden Era, uh, The Midnight After, which I've talked about a few times on the show, and, and Hayward Mack's Uncertain Relationship Society, of which I am apparently the world's biggest fan. Uh, but the, uh, the big draw has got to be a 20th anniversary showing of Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express, which, as we've discussed several times on the show, is the second greatest film of all time. <laughs> it's playing November fifteenth, and so you should go see it. Uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds totally wonderful. Um, let's hear it for the West Coast. Yeah, <laughs> West Coast, Hong Kong, and none of these things are playing in Seattle. No, they're not. Seattle. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll. Uh, We'll close it out with some Pixies too, and then we will never hear from the Pixies ever again on this show. Um, never, so never, because <laughs> them's the rules. Um, so here's a debaser, because yeah. that's that's how we do it. Uh, we'll see you next time. Henri Henri Langlois, a big fan of Lucien uh, Andalou. That's right. Yeah. Shoot! <laughs>